Welcome to Common Ground, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Serhati Nelson. It's been five weeks since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and sent millions of people fleeing toward the West. According to UNHCR figures, it's the sixth largest refugee outflow in the world in more than six decades. But are Germany and the EU able to cope with the new arrivals? Does President Joe Biden's recently saying the U.S. will take 100,000 Ukrainians actually help? And what does this enormous European refugee crisis mean for the hundreds of thousands of other migrants coming here to escape war, terrorism, and poverty? To answer those questions and more, I'm joined in the studio by Vipka Judith, legal policy advisor for the refugee group Pro Asil. Welcome, Vipka. Hi, thank you. And joining us via Zoom are Julia Chanusha, deputy chairwoman of the Blue Yellow Cross German-Ukrainian Association, and Sami Sharifi, an Afghan lawyer who works with the Kabul Luftbrücke, which has been evacuating Afghans since the Taliban takeover last summer. Welcome to the two of you. Hello. Hi. So, Vipka, the arrivals at Berlin Hauptbahnhof, our central station these past weeks, harken back to 2015 when Syrians, Afghans, Iraqis, and others fleeing their homelands came here. Was Germany better prepared for this crisis? I've been getting this question a lot in the last weeks. Um, Of course, 2015 is an obvious point for comparison, but... There are, of course, major differences, and I think that also impacts, of course, a bit the situation on the ground and also what the government can and should do. So in contrast to 2015, what we actually do see is that people are allowed to enter, like the EU in general, which is major because this means that people don't have to take an extremely life-threatening and dangerous journey. But also it means that they are allowed at the moment to travel freely within the European Union and actually choose where they want to find protection. And this is not something we have seen in 2015. So this also means that there is, um, yeah, a bit less, uh, so to speak, control in a way on where do people arrive, at what time, which can, of course, lead to situations where it seems a bit chaotic. And it is a situation that we, like most people did not foresee five weeks ago. The administration is kind of trying to keep up, I would say. And again, and this is really something we've seen in 2015, of course, as well. It's really volunteers and civil society who is doing most of the work um, or a lot of the work, at least, especially in the first days. But when you walk in Hauptbahnhof today in Berlin, you see so many young people or also older people, you know, with those yellow vests, uh, really helping people going from one place to the other. And it's great. You know, of course, it's terrific that people help so much, but it's It's also something where it's for sure necessary that state structures are in place. And especially for the longer term, civil society cannot do everything by its own. So we really need state support on many levels. Sammy, as someone who's been very actively involved with this since August of last year when the Taliban took over Kabul, what are the differences that you see? I mean, were Afghans being welcomed in this way following the Taliban takeover? I mean, we talked about 2015, which was a different situation, but I'm just talking about now. Uh, in recent months, you know, was there also that sort of opening up as far as Germany was concerned toward Afghans? First of all, um, I, I want to clarify that I do respect and share the same grief with the Ukrainian people because I'm someone who has also suffered from war. But my problem is with the principle of equal treatment that has been breached throughout all these years, but most importantly, with the current comparison of two crises that are happening. I do not call the Afghans coming here an Afghan crisis. I call it 
a legitimate relocation of Afghans to the European countries and Germany. Why? Because the last 20 years, the people that you're bringing in Europe and in Germany are the people mostly that have helped realizing and implementing the military, humanitarian, and many other interests of European countries. So first of all, it's not a refugee crisis. It's a legitimate right that Afghan people hold, and they should be treated with full equality as adders. Well, let me ask Vipka to his point, because he says that there is something owed here. And there's no doubt that a lot of the the Afghan refugees who I'm dealing with and that I know Lufbrücke is dealing with are quote-unquote Ortskräfte. You know, they're called Ortskräfte. And they are, you know, basically working or they have contributed in some way to the German development of Afghanistan. Do you think the Germans or the Europeans share that view that they owe something to Afghans? And why do they feel they owe something to Ukrainians? Well, Poazu, first of all, um, is a very similar opinion <laughs> of what was just said. Um, and we're also both supporting individual cases, but also litigation to actually make sure that people have this claim. So um, that people get recognized as local staff and that they have a way out, even though that's, of course, also very complicated than in practice. I do think in Germany, I can speak mostly for Germany, I think especially when it came to local staff, at least politically, there was a big show of, yes, of course, we need to get people out, even though they started way too late. We have been pushing since April last year for them to start evacuating people. And they started after the Taliban took over. They could have started when they started removing German troops. That would have been an obvious thing to do. So there was a, like a lot of political will, at least um, how it was publicly presented. But then what we see in practice is that only around half of the people who were um, granted admission have actually arrived. So there's a huge implementing problem. Many people have not been considered, even though they have worked um, for German companies. But because of their contract, Germany says, oh, it's not a direct employee. Or people who have worked for human rights, for women's rights, um, there is really only a very small group that last year was um, decided that they will get admission and many others were just put aside. And there is the idea of a humanitarian admission program, but we have 100 days of the new government already passed and nothing has happened so far on that front. I think in Germany, yes, there was a bit of a political will, but when it really came down to implementing, we have not seen this to be as effective as it would need to be considering everything that's happening on the ground in Kabul and Afghanistan and how the Taliban are really searching houses. So there's a huge need and a huge protection need. But of course, we see this also publicly pushed a bit towards the back because of course, and to some degree, understandably, there's a big focus now on Ukraine. Okay, we're definitely going to talk more about this differentiation uh, in the second half. I do want to talk with Julia about who are the Ukrainians who are coming right now? I mean, there's a large group of people. My understanding is there's more than a quarter million, at least that's what the Ministry of Interior is reporting, and 7,000 or more are being added to the rosters every day. So who are these people who are coming? And how has the reception been? I mean, are there enough services in order to, to help these people who are coming and who obviously have lost, many of them have lost everything? Thank you for the question. Yeah, from our perspective and the information that we receive as NGO, which are currently also and started proactively supporting Ukrainians who uh, were arriving there, mostly are women and children and elderly people who are allowed to um, pass the border because the men are not allowed to do that. They have to stay uh, due to the law on military cases. 
And these are coming uh, firstly by the buses, which were done by volunteers and by our organizations as well. After that, also many people were coming on their own because it's for free to use the buses, the trains, etc. The situation is as follows. The big cities are overfloated now. And the from, from my understanding, it's also not enough uh, for the city uh, in terms of personnel to cover uh, everything as fast as they can. So we now see the res- registration delays. It takes a lot of time, but it's understandable, of course. And uh, now we are in cooperation with the cities, also supporting these people with the information. Do these people plan to stay in Germany, or is this sort of seen as a temporary situation and they hope to go back to Ukraine once this war Uh, ends? uh, Frankly saying, also not everybody is fleeing because they don't want to even change the country. They are uh, now collecting themselves at the western uh, regions of Ukraine. But those who came, uh, yeah, they have the right to, to stay for three months without visa. That's why not everybody needs to get it from the very beginning. And the registration is uh, eased by the uh, 24th paragraph, and it will give them also the possibility to work. So it's also now a very sharp question uh, from both sides, because the Ukrainians that have already arrived, they want to work as well. For that, they have to be registered. They are actively doing this, and also other volunteer organizations, they are preparing themselves to give the possibility for those who came here to to study, to uh, to go to work. But as far as I understand and see the tendency, the Ukrainians, they came here because of war. As soon as it is over and it's safe to go home, they will do. It was not the idea to come here for us to stay for a long time. Sammy, what about the Afghan idea? Are the people who are coming here now that the Taliban has taken over, are they planning to stay? Or do they have the similar attitude that they want to go back to Afghanistan as soon as possible? That's a actually very good question, but I would also point out that the difference uh, of struggle, the people of Afghanistan, you have to fight for their approval. You have to fight for their visa and make a lot of efforts for them to go to a third country so they can be evacuated and come to Germany, for example. Let me just stop you for one second. When you say they have to fight for their approval, you mean approval to be able to come to, to Germany or to Germany. the EU? Fight, I mean legal struggle to make prove themselves eligible while they evidently have proof that they have worked, for example, with with European institutions, German institutions in the past. And and, and a lot of those people don't have approvals. A lot of those people are not eligible to travel because they're not documentarily ready. For example, they don't have passport because the passport department is inactive and they're left in there to be persecuted by the Taliban. I wouldn't expose the specifics of the case or the name, but I had a conversation with someone yesterday who told me that he has been running since the fall of Kabul and he would have killed himself before they would kill him. But the only reason he's not killing himself is his children. That person could be easily evacuated and could be given the same treatment as the Ukrainian displaced people. But would he be willing and would others be willing to go back to Afghanistan? Or do they at this point say, forget it, we can't ever go back. And so settling in Europe or Germany is what is on refugees' minds who are coming. I'm telling you as a, as a person who recently have moved into this country, 
the moment I notice that the risk of persecution and my basic human rights can be ensured in Afghanistan, I will be the first one who go and serve my country back. You're faced with a brutal terrorist group who are no more a group, now a regime leading a country in there with no sense of respect to any basic human rights. See the example of those innocent girls crying, going um, back to their home and not be allowed to, to their schools. It tells the brutality and the inhumane mindset in that regime right now. And imagine if you are a person who served with the foreign governments and foreign entities and realized or implemented their interests in there against the Taliban, what they will do with you. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that Afghans are under a lot of pressure um, there. But Vipka, I want to ask, because right now the crisis that is obviously looming large for most uh, Germans and Europeans, because it's only one country away, is what's happening in Ukraine. And so far, if you include people displaced in the country, it's more than a quarter of the population. A lot of people are coming this way. Poland has taken on more than a million, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, certainly Romania, Hungary, and Germany, you know, have been taking on many hundreds of thousands themselves. So the question is, when President Joe Biden, during his recent EU visit, offered to take in 100,000 Ukrainians, is that going to take the pressure off of Europe? Or is that just a token in your estimation? Yeah, I mean, kind of four weeks into the war, there are about 3.8 million Ukrainians who had to flee the country. Um, I think Poland is actually at 2 million right now. So this is, of course, a massive displacement that we're seeing. And while generally, of course, internationality, international solidarity is, I think, always welcome, always good. Um, when I heard about this offer, I did wonder, first of all, I'm not sure if this is what the Ukrainians themselves are interested in right now. Perhaps Yuya can even speak more to that, but more of this, this like the US or also Canada is like very far away from Ukraine and fleeing to Poland or Romania or even Germany or, you know, other European countries might still feel way more closer to their home and not as such a possible permanent choice. And I do think what we have to see, of course, Europe is a bit in this unique situation that we haven't had for many years, that actually we are kind of the countries of first reception. So we're more in a situation like Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan, where when um, the conflict started in Syria, and this is more comparable in a way than kind of European experience in 2015. But we are one of the wealthiest and uh, economically most successful regions, you know, internationally. So I think there is a big possibility of us totally managing this crisis. There is a new political will we have not seen in the last years. I'm very happy that it's there now. It is a bit frustrating to see that, yes, when it comes to accepting refugees, it is apparently all political will. Um, because if you would have ha asked the Polish government, like six weeks ago, would Poland be able to accept two million refugees? There's no way they would have said yes, right? But now it is possible, like also really thanks to the people because they're doing a lot of the work in Poland, but also because there is a different mindset. We just would want this mindset, of course, to be applied to all refugees and at all borders, which is clearly not the case. The polish belarusian border is still a completely different story than the border to Ukraine. But perhaps to come back to your question. So, of course, international solidarity is good as such, but also there I would say 
when we look internationally at refugee crises, there are other regions who might need this support, I would say, a bit more than Europe does. I think, first of all, Europe can still support each other, basically, more and better. And it would be good if there are more traveling options, more possibilities to easily also go to other European member states, not as like an obligation, but really more as more choice for the people there. Let me ask each of you um, from your viewpoint, and obviously everyone's coming at it a little bit differently, even if there is agreement on some core issues. Do you think that this crisis with Ukraine, this war and this sort of proximity, that this is finally going to spur Europe into coming up with some sort of comprehensive refugee policy that doesn't depend on the will or voluntary quotas, which is something I know that the German interior minister is very frustrated by right now. Um, So so let me just ask Vipka to answer first, and then I'll ask Sammy and then uh, Julia if you want to answer, and then we'll go to break. I mean, Europe has been split on refugee questions since 2015. Um, there has been a long reform process on kind of the law aspects, which has stalled over and over and over again. So we have seen a complete turn in European policy on a few core questions, such as that people are freely able to choose the country they want to stay in. So in contrast to the usual Dublin system, that they're actually legally allowed to enter, which does have to do with visa-free policy. But I think it's the main thing that this was not actually like turned down um, during the crisis now. Um, but so far, this is very much exclusively for the people fleeing from Ukraine. And the big question is, of course, if this could become more broader policy. And while we, of course, are going to push for this, I do think there is a danger that at least we have to be aware of and look at that there is going to be rather a consequence of, well, now that we're allowing the Ukrainians in, we have to be even tougher at our other external borders, like even have more cooperation with third countries to try to prevent other people from fleeing and seeking protection in Europe. This would, of course, be kind of a continuation of policy we already have, but it would be terrible if this would be even pushed further because we can see how much of a difference it makes to have borders that are open to people fleeing protection because while we have 3.8 million people who have fled to the EU, we have not seen pictures like we know from the 2015 crisis with Alan Kurdi, the uh, the Syrian boy who uh, was found dead in Turkey. Um, We don't have people actually dying at Europe's borders, which unfortunately is the normal reality that we have. Sammy, what do you think? Do you think that this crisis with Ukraine is going to make it a better or more comprehensive policy that Europe adopts when it comes to asylum seekers, migrants, refugees, you know, whatever category people that are coming? Or do you think it's going to make it harder for people like Afghans to be able to seek help and find refuge? It's already harder because the problem is not with the, mostly with the policies because you can make the best policy in the world, but if you don't have the willingness and the attitude to implement that the best way, um, still you don't have any tangible result. I, in front of me right now, I have the European Convention on Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms. And the first article talks about prohibition of discrimination, general discrimination and all. So for a short uh, amount of time, I wouldn't read the entire article, but uh, overall the theme is that you do have principles set forth in Europe that if you see it in paper, you praise it. Oh my God, such as, for example, this convention, you're like, okay. But the problem is with the attitude. And unfortunately, politicians can find their way around almost any policy. 
in any convention if they don't have the attitude, the commitment, and the convictions to really help and ensure equality on their treatment. So in, in, in my view of thinking, it is all really complicated and it will keep becoming complicated because of lack of respect to the principles of equality towards displaced people, immigrants and refugees. Julia, do you think that there is anything that the European Union, that Brussels or that Germany could be doing differently to make it easier for the Ukrainians that are coming? Because they're going to keep coming and in large numbers as Russia continues the war. Yeah, I'm listening to the opponents and I'm thinking about the same uh, as well. The only thing what I'm looking at this, uh, the crisis of refugees, yeah, but this is the consequence and the cause is the war, as you said as well. As long as we have the war, the more people will flee and Ukraine is a large country. So I'm expecting more and more people uh, to be fleeing because the war is getting worse and worse each day. So uh, even those who are now located in the Western regions, if the uh, Lviv is already being bombed and it's the most Western, uh, it means that those people will have to flee as well. I also agree that there can be done the perfect policy and even the implementation would be also uh, okay, but the capacity of European countries to, to receive that many people, I doubt that takes less time. And what we now see that uh, no country is that prepared. I don't see the end of that now. I was also expecting that the war will be finished uh, as soon as possible. Uh, the Ukrainians will keep fighting, but the innocent people are dying, the innocent people have to flee. So the crisis will go on. The idea of preparing the European countries of doing better policies, it means that we expect more wars. Yeah, we expect this uh, this being continued. I think there has to be a political will to be more precise on fighting the cause. What do you what do you mean by fighting the cause? Like, in other words, focusing on this particular Fo conflict or? Yeah, the European Union has to be more more about they are doing as well all they can. But as Ukrainian now, I would say we have to concentrate on the sanctions, for example, on trying to stop the war. Parallelly, yes, we try to do everything best to cover this crisis because it's going parallelly. But talking only on the crisis of uh, of refugees, it's uh, a bit wrong. So we have to work on every idea of stopping it, stopping the war, stopping the reason why the people are fleeing. Not only in Ukraine, but also if covering all the world, we have to be more consistent on what we do against the cause. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear about the role racism and other prejudices play in the refugee crisis. Stay tuned. Hello, this is Abby, presenter and co-creator of Berlin Briefing. Do you find yourself having trouble understanding the news of the Hauptstadt, usually presented in German? If so, Berlin Briefing can help. We curate local top stories and present them in an 8 to 10 minute podcast in English every Monday through Friday. You can find us at berlinbriefing.de or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, the host of Common Ground. And I'm Dina El Sayed, the senior producer. Each week, we bring you a new lively discussion on a hard hitting topic. If you want to learn more about our podcast, check out our website at commongroundberlin.com. The episodes are free to download, but they aren't free to create. Common Ground depends on grants as well as donations from listeners like you. So if you want to help us out, please click on the donate button at commongroundberlin.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome back to Common Ground Berlin. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and joining me are Vipka Judith of Pro Azil, Julia Chanusha of the Blue Yellow Cross German Ukrainian Association, and Sami Sharifi of Kabul Luftbrücke. We are talking about what's likely to become the largest refugee crisis since World War II and how Ukraine's neighbors, the EU and Germany, are dealing with it. Sami, I'm going to start with you because I would like to find out some of the differences that you're seeing, uh, or examples, even here in Berlin, of how Afghan refugees who are coming these weeks are being treated versus Ukrainians. What are you seeing? I will start with a very small but yet very important um, <laughs> bus tickets. <laughs> While Ukrainian refugees are uh, treated with free allowance for public transportations, And um, I'm telling from my personal experience, the first months, because I did not know how to even buy a tram ticket or a bus ticket or a train ticket, I had to walk. I had to walk very long distances because I was afraid that if I enter into this train, I would not have at least even the, the, <laughs> the understanding how it works. And someone will come with a machine and will find me for I don't know how many um, euros, which I would hardly have at that moment. This itself tells a lot. Um, telling you one more example, my former professor, who's an author of more than 16 books, he worked with a few German organizations back days in Afghanistan. He's on a camp with no internet access while he's supposed to teach classes online. And he told me that. I taught I have served this country's interests and I will be treated with integrity and with equal treatment. But right now, I'm in, on a camp where I don't even have access to internet. Internet something that sounds very basic for a lot of people. But for a professor, it is the most important thing and something that he cannot have access to at that moment. That's, that's just an example. Well, do you um, have examples in Berlin, though, for example? I mean, for me, because I'm here and I kind of would like to know how an Afghan refugee is treated versus a Ukrainian coming in. I mean, you know, they're, technically it's not supposed to really be a differentiation, but it does exist. It does exist. But what the, the, the point is, you're bringing Afghans from, from their country. They are professionals and they carry life experience, both professional experience. And they can be used in the communities quite uh, rapidly and quickly, imprisoning them in those camps in a very dehumanizing way and with very basic facilities. Not only is not productive, but is counterproductive because it adds to their depression. So um, in Berlin, I've heard a lot of Afghans who have moved in and they have hard time, for example, meeting relatives or or. Uh, having a lot of freedom in terms of uh, their choices on camps or on homes that they live in. So, of course, there's a double standard. And it brings me back to the first point that I made, which is in paper, 
it's very clearly stated that all human beings should be treated equal before the laws and blah, blah, blah. But in practice, unfortunately, there's an attitude that has to change and has to stop. Julia, Sammy brought up a point uh, in this last answer about work and the ability to actually implement people quickly to work. Are the Ukrainians who are coming, are they eager to get started uh, and work here? I mean, since this is where they have to make their lives while the war is going on? Yes. First, I wanted to make a, a short comment on what Sammy was telling. I'm sure. very sorry to hear that there's uh, the facts of such a discrimination. I hope that I hope that everything will be better after the regulation will be changed or whatsoever. But from my information, what I have received, locally Ukrainians and other uh, nationalities, they are also staying at the same camps. What I understand the difference is the legal treatment because Ukrainians, as I already said, they have uh, the right to stay here without visa and they have the right to apply for a visa for work. So the other countries or other citizens from the other countries that had to flee, they didn't have this uh, opportunity. They had to apply for a zoo directly. And there, I'm aware there are the legal differences on how you are um, legally treated. So you have to stay at the same place. You cannot work it from the very first uh, arrival and so on. And your question was, I'm sorry, now I was talking too long. <laughs> no comment. The question was, are the Ukrainians who are coming eager to work since they have to yeah. make a life here? Uh, um, and and yeah. are they being yeah. well received yeah. when they do that? In fact, yes and yes. And it's also uh, somebody is already joking that, uh, that Ukrainians are coming here and they demand to start working from the very moment. We are very proud of that fact that the wish to work is also that high. It means that people... Do not think to um, to stay on the social uh, protection for a long time. They want to work. They want to do something. There are so many of those who are coming to us as well directly to support voluntarily just to do something for their country uh, and to support those who stayed there. Yes, they wish to work. I know that there are also a lot of organizations are already starting to do something like platforms. I think many of them already exist. Uh, but at the same time, even though the the wish is there and the possibility is there, we still are uh, facing the delays in registration. So they have to be legally registered to have this right. And this is delayed due to the amount of people which are coming and due to the amount that big cities are not uh, do not have that capacity to with that overload. Are they able to work if they don't have German, though? I mean, it's because this has certainly been a problem for the Afghans. Uh, certainly all the Afghans that I know, and I know a fair number, uh, as I spent many years in Afghanistan working, they would like to be able to work, but they have to learn the language first. They have to, you know, get established, and that takes time. So is that a barrier for Ukrainians, or is there another avenue for them? For an amount of them, that will be a barrier, but it also depends on which work is given. Yes, yeah, so maybe in service works, it will be easier, even without the language. Many of Ukrainians also know English, so it will be not a problem for many of them as well. Uh, at the same time, as we are talking about uh, young women and children, yeah, uh, maybe it would not be possible for everybody to start working because they have to take care of their children. So it's also the question of schools, of yeah, of, of everything is is compound, yeah. But still, yeah, the barrier would be there, but I don't think it will be a great problem because uh, also a community, Ukrainian community in Germany, is also a large one, and the support is there. Uh, as an organization, we also have uh, lots of volunteers who translate uh, 
maybe there will be also ongoing support uh, during the work. And the companies also, international companies also have this potential. Sammy has his hand up here on the Zoom screen. There's something you wanted to add or ask, Sammy? Um, yeah, because it was a little funny uh, because with Afghan refugees, I, I want to be very clear. It's not just that they do have the wish to work, but also they have the experience and the capacity to work. You're bringing Afghans in this country and in the European countries that have already served your country's interests and projects in the host country in Afghanistan, which means their CVs are filled with experience already with European entities and institutions. So not just the wish to work exists in there, the capacity, the commitment, and the talent to work also is there. But the problem is the double standard. Well, I think it's more than just the double standard in fairness. Uh, I think Vipka wants to ask something. I just finished my sentence. I mean, what I wanted to say is that language is certainly an issue. I mean, you know, you have to be able to speak German in some capacity, even if you're speaking English or you were speaking English at the NGOs in Afghanistan. It's a different story here in Germany. And so learning the language takes time. And that requires, you know, some training or whatever, and also different standards for, for degrees. I mean, so it's not just the double standard, like we treat Ukrainians differently that than uh, Afghans or than than Syrians? Or did you mean a different kind of double standard? Um, Thank you for complimenting my point. It's not just about the majority, uh, I mean, already are equipped with skills and experiences to be integrated in these entities and institutions. As uh, Yulia pointed out at Ukrainians speaking English, which is amazing, we do have a majority of these Afghans that you bring into these countries. They also speak English and they are capable to be integrated. That's what I meant, that they too have the commitment and they are quite ready to be integrated. Of course, the language barriers exist and you cannot put them all in all contexts. But from that perspective, I mean that they not just have the wish, but they also have the experience. You just need to give them platforms to learn, but also contribute. Okay, Vipka, go ahead. You wanted to... Yeah, I just wanted to come in a bit on these um, legal questions, um, but also point out perhaps, I mean, we are talking now about two groups which have a bit of a special status. So the Ukrainians with the temporary protection, um, so that once they arrive, they can immediately apply for it. And well, of course, there is a question now how quickly it's going to go in practice, at least um, as such, this is clear with the right to work. And then on the other hand, um, the Afghans that are actually evacuated, also they can immediately apply for a residence permit while here and then also work. So also they don't have to go into the asylum procedure. So, so both groups are treated a bit differently than other people who come on their own account, who have very different reasons, of course, for fleeing their country, for making this decision, often having really difficult journeys. And um, I do think there's a bit of a danger now in this narrative. Ukrainians, you know, they really want to start working from day one. Everyone wants to work from day one usually, right? But they are not allowed. Like when you go into the asylum procedure in Germany, you have to live in a big center of first reception. And while, as Julia said, um, and also Sami, many of the Ukrainians and also the Afghans who were evacuated also stay there, they're not legally obliged as such. It's more because they don't have other possibilities, of course, when they just arrive. And it can be very difficult to find housing, which actually leads to whole other questions of problems of social housing in Germany, like a racist housing market, making it super difficult for some people to find affordable housing. Um, But the people in the asylum procedure for up to 18 months, they cannot legally 
stay with friends or relatives, even if they have them in Germany. And this is a conscious choice also to create certain isolation to the rest of the German or the population in Germany to prevent integration from day one because it's not wanted politically, because it's the idea that they stay there for the asylum procedure. And then if they're denied for whatever reasons, you know, to also not have them integrated, that actually makes it harder to then return them to their home country. So this is a conscious political choice. And for the first nine months, that also means that they are not allowed to work. And for the longest time, we've also seen great differences in how asylum seekers coming from different countries are treated. Because we always had this principle that there is a first kind of assumption that some countries are more likely to be accepted and that they're allowed to stay while others are not. And that this was a differentiation or is still, it's meant to change according to the coalition agreement, but it's not put in practice. So only some people had access to integration classes, for example, from side one. And Afghanistan was not part of them for the longest time. Actually, that was only changed last year at some point, even though uh, it was clear that most will actually stay. So we have always had big differentiations concerning different refugee groups. Um, you know, for some, it went much faster in the asylum procedure than for others. And I do think this is a bit what we always kind of try to push again if we see now or if we ask this question are you know these really big centers of first reception suitable for people who just fled war yes this is the correct question to ask but it should be asked for everyone you know if this is not a suitable place for people traumatized from the war from ukraine it's also not a suitable place for women from eritrea who fled via libya was possibly sexually abused and then came to Germany. You know, so this is a bit um, where we really try to push that, as was mentioned, you know, really often now that these differentiations um, are really not existent anymore and that there is just better treatment for all asylum seekers and people who need protection in Germany. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank my guests, Vipka Judith, who you just heard of Pol Azil, Julia Chanusha of the Blue Yellow Cross German-Ukrainian Association, and Sami Sharifi of Kabul Luftbrücke. I really appreciate you taking the time out uh, to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and thank you for listening to Common Ground Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali, and our intern is Abigail Meginson. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. If you are on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground Berlin. You can also subscribe to and rate our podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. 